Boom. We're back. Seeking wisdom. What's going on, young Adam? What's up, DC? Good to be back. We're excited. We're going to talk more about what you wish you knew when you were younger. That's what we're here to do. <laughs> you write down these tweets and we have to talk about them. That's the rules. I wish I was younger. That's what I wish I knew when I was younger. Stay young. <laughs> well, in the absence of making you younger, we're going to impart this wisdom on me, first of all, because I'm much younger and others listening. <laughs> That's savagery. Savage. Had to get that one in there for you. <laughs> much younger. Much, much baby. So anyway, we're back, people, seeking wisdom. The universe is only six-star podcast. Six-star. If you're listening to this, also know that we are now putting these on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. Maybe I'll even go to Twitch soon and run my own Discord server. Let's go. TikTok. It's time. It's everywhere. TikTok. Let's do it everywhere, humanly possible. The universe is only six-star podcast, and we're back with the young Jedi in training. Adam Schoenfeld. All right, let's talk. Let's do this. I'm excited about this one today because you said in this piece of wisdom, great opportunities are much rarer than you think. Go all in when you find the few in your lifetime. That is me paraphrasing a story that Charlie Munger once talked about where his uncle had said that to him. I believe it was his uncle. Might have been his great uncle, but I think it was his uncle who said, who gave that advice to him early in his life. And he credits that as being one of the most important pieces of advice that he ever got, which is this idea that opportunities are very rare. I think as kids, we're taught for some reason, we get this notion in our head or we're taught that we have, that we can do anything in the world, which is not true, which is a whole nother podcast. Then two, that there's going to be this boundless opportunities that are going to come our way, which is also not true. It's actually super rare and you're only going to have a handful of these in your life. And now that I can look back, because I am much older than Adam, as he said, I can look back at my history and say like, wow, the true opportunities, which you never know when they're there, right? Or they're hard to know when you're there. So we can talk more about that. But like true opportunities are very, very rare. And I don't have regrets. I don't really think about the past, but like if I were to say the biggest mistakes that I probably have made is not to double, triple, quadruple down on those opportunities when they were in front of me. And instead, you know, I kind of treated them like everything else and treated them with this kind of idea that many of these were going to come down the road. So can you talk about how you were miscalibrated on this in the past? Because sure. saying it's much rarer than you think, it kind of implies that we think there are more and that maybe you thought there were more. Mm -hmm. So how do you... How were you miscalibrated versus like how you see it now and how do you come to that realization? Well, now that I can look back, I can see some of these, I can see some of these opportunities that were actually on the sur even on the surface when they were in front of me, they were super unusual. They didn't feel like anything else in the past. And, uh, and I hadn't had those experiences before and the magnitude and you know, in some of the cases, and I'm talking mostly in the professional sense here, but we have these in the personal sense as well. But for me, in the professional sense, they were an order of magnitude greater than anything that I had seen before. They were, they moved at a different speed. They had their own velocity. They had their own energy, their own momentum, right? When I saw these opportunities or I was involved in these opportunities, but I kind of, for some reason, looked at them and thought, well, there's another one's going to come down the road soon, or I'm going to have another one of these. Even though at the time I knew that I had not felt anything like this before. And I think for me, it was probably 
like many of us, it was the logical part, right? Or the rational part saying like, you know, kind of convincing myself that this was normal, that this was something that I'd seen before, or that this thing, this momentum, this, this energy that I felt was something that I should discount, something that I shouldn't pay attention to because I couldn't explain it. I couldn't put my arms around it. I couldn't say, this is, you know, in a concrete terms, this is this amazing opportunity. And instead, because I couldn't explain it in a logical, rational sense, I kind of dismissed it. And I kind of looked at it basically for what it was at the time, discounting the energy and the momentum behind these things. You talked about momentum a few times, which is pretty interesting. Are there sort of like, I know, I, I know that part of the trap is to try to explain it logically, which I always want to do, right? But is there some kind of laws of nature that you think are behind that or powerful forces at work that you felt or saw when you look back on those things or any patterns that kind of stand out? You know, I, I've wanted to come up with, again, because we both like to think in terms of systems and frameworks, I've wanted to come up with a framework for how to identify these things. But, you know, aside from a feeling, which is not satisfactory to, to either of us, I don't know how to create a framework around it. I'd say you, you know it when you see it, right? And you know when you experience it that it's different. It's kind of trying to like create a framework around how you fell in love with your wife, right? How do you rationalize that? How do you create a framework around that? How do you explain that to someone else and say, when these three things happen, uh, you'll know that you should marry this person and have kids and fall in love with this person. It's a really, you know, it's a kind of an impossible thing to talk about. And even how we met, you know, when you were running your own company, Sifrock, and we talked about, you know, a possibility of an acquisition, like, I remember you saying one of the things that was attractive about that was this kind of momentum that you felt that Drift had in the market. Again, how do you explain that? Was that number of tweets or retweets or, you know, like likes or, you know, that kind of stuff? Like, or Right. There was no KPI for that. There was no KPI for it. I, I don't know how to explain it. And it's unsatisfactory for systems thinkers, but like I will say, the system that I've relied on is to be more in tune with when something feels wildly different in a positive sense, like it feels unusual. And the more history that you have, the easier it gets to spot like, wow, that's really unusual. That feels right. very different than the rest. Well, because in retrospect, that's the only way then you then know, oh, I had that feeling. And you can then see the result play out over mm -hmm. time and mm -hmm. see that, oh, that was a big thing. Yep. This reminds me also of, speaking of Charlie Munger, of his business partner, Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett was talking about a similar concept. And he, the way that he talked about it was, and he was giving a speech to a bunch of people in business school and saying like, I'm sure you've heard this, where he was saying that, you know, like, think about, you know, that these opportunities are rare. Like it's hard to identify the person who is going to stand out. But if you were to look at all your classmates and say, you could only bet on one person, how would you decide who to bet on? And whatever income or whatever they produced over the next 25 years was going to be your only portfolio of one. So how would you choose? And he would say, and he said, it wouldn't be, you know, in some ways, it wouldn't be the, the rational, logical, systematic way of doing it. It wouldn't be who's the smartest, who's the best looking, who's the best speaker. It wouldn't be any of those kind of things that we would think of or who did the best in class or whatever, but it would be this intrinsic quality, right? That for some reason, this person stood out. And he, I think he said, you know, this person had a twinkle in their eye. They, this person had something really different about them. And that was the person that you would probably 
place your bet on if you could only bet on one person. It's very similar to this in terms of looking for opportunities. You know, often I meet and myself when I've done angel investing in the past, you know, it's hard to explain who you invest in and the people who have been very successful versus the other, but they had a different energy around them. That when you pattern match and you talk to enough people, like when you met this person for whatever reason, it doesn't mean it's going to work out, but like this person had something different around them. And it wasn't just charisma, it wasn't just their speaking ability, but there was something different around them from an energy standpoint. And the more experiences that you have with people, the more, the easier it is to find someone who just like is intrinsically different about this person. I love that. Cause I think we can all identify that thing and people that we choose to have relationships with or who we bet on. And it really brings it down to earth a little bit. How do you think about the other side of this? You know, I don't know if you're known for being the most patient person in DC, but there's <laughs> the other half of this of like knowing when you, when you see the big opportunity, knowing to double down, triple down, go hard on it. But then there's also the kind of patience component or waiting for the fat pitch as Munger says, like that piece. Obviously, you know that I struggle with that. <laughs> and so I definitely struggle with, you know, being patient and just waiting it out. I think the approach that I've taken, and this is just an approach, is to to rely on the play the numbers game and say you have to kiss a lot of frogs, right? You're going to have to kiss a lot of frogs. You're going to have to do a lot of experiments. You're going to do have to iterate a lot and have lots and lots of failures. And I think, you know, this is something that probably Bezos would say and has said around, you know, like that they have to have a culture of, at Amazon, a culture of lots and lots and lots of experiments. And most of them will fail and some of them will fail epically. And there will be, you know, a handful of winners, which will disproportionately pay for all the experiments. And so I, I kind of think about it at that in our terms as well, at Drift of just like, we have to have this culture of continuously trying and experimenting. Almost all those things will fail, but like they will help us get closer to something that will win or kind of educate us on the way to getting closer to something that we can use down the road. Hmm. So how do you balance sort of avoiding failure or avoiding swinging at the wrong bet, thinking something's a big opportunity when it's not versus just designing a process that accounts for failure is, is or is that even the right thing to balance? I think we should do a better job of it, but we do try to design a process around trying lots of different things. I'd say, I don't think we can avoid failure. And so like we will fail on these things. You know, often some people would say, you know, you need to celebrate failure more. I don't know how to do that personally. And so like if someone can help me <laughs> figure out how to, it doesn't feel good ever. So like I, when someone says that to me, uh, says that, or I hear people uh, speak about that, I, I really cannot connect with that because I, I don't know how to celebrate failure, right? Even culturally or, or personally. And so it's never going to feel good, but I think we just have to kind of the thing that I always talk about, which is like, we have to just be comfortable being in this uncomfortable position because it's not going to feel good, no matter how much you talk about creating a culture of, of uh, celebrating failures. So I don't think we avoid them. I think we kind of try to lean into them. I think we can always do a better job at how we lean into them. I do think the thing that is important is to have to not get stuck in the failure mode for too long or not wanting to cut bait in other words on the failure and just like just we're dealing with things that are largely digital in terms of failure in terms of experiments in our case and so just like get rid of them as as quickly as possible just shutter them and uh, and deal with it and take your hard medicine uh, quickly 
Yeah, it kind of goes back to what we talked about before with the reversibility factor or the one-way mm-hmm. door versus two-way exactly. door, right? As long as mm-hmm. we're in a two-way door, then the cost is can be very little as long as we're designed for that. And I, and I love that framework. And I think it's important for all of us to kind of keep repeating that. And we do. But, you know, we are emotional creatures. It doesn't feel good. No one likes confrontation. No one wants to tell the person or, or people or team that have been working on something that... We're going to get rid of that thing and we're going to, you know, put their energy on something else. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to tell, you know, people, users or customers of something that you can't use that thing anymore. So like these things are, again, you know, my mantra is like simple, not easy. Everything is simple in conceptually, but, you know, it's very, very hard to actually pull off. And so, you know, those are mantras for a reason for me because I have to convince myself. I have to repeat them to myself so that I can actually do them and remember those things when the time comes and it actually sucks to do it. We all know that feeling. All right. Who else do you like for role models in this or who else have you learned from on this principle about great opportunities being rare and going all in. And we talked about Munger, talked about Bezos a little bit. Who else do you like to learn from on this one or role model companies or people? You know, there's a number of people who are a kind of role model on this, but one that, um, and all three of the ones that you mentioned now are ones that I talk about a lot and ones that are role models, but, you know, I'm always searching for new ones. And one that I've been really spending a lot of time uh, consuming and understanding their approach is Bill Ackerman at Pershing Square, who run, runs a hedge, which is a hedge fund and uh, that he runs. And he, it's a very different hedge fund in that they do and, you know, look for search for YouTube videos. You can listen to a lot of talks that he does and a lot of uh, briefings that he does with the press. But like they have 10, you know, eight to 10 holdings. They hold them for a very long time, very different than most PE firms. And so like they're trying to hold these things for a long time. It's a very like Buffett, you know, a more modernized version of a Buffett, you know, a Berkshire kind of strategy, but like they have 10 holdings. And so I like the way that he thinks about it and he evaluates uh, his bets and how much energy that they put into a bet. And he has very clear kind of framework for how they decide on what companies to even spend time on and how much and to do due diligence on because they're only going to have 10 bets. You know, they only have 50 people in a company that are, that's managing, you know, billions of dollars from a portfolio standpoint. And so Bill Ackerman is someone who, who I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on and then he's current. So that's good. We can listen, you know, you can hear current stuff from him, but uh, you know, I've mentioned that I'm really spending a lot of time on Andrew Carnegie right now. And so kind of trying to learn some lessons there, which is a whole different podcast. All right. I, I want to do that one. I want to know what you're learning from that, but I guess I have to go read that 2000 yeah, first. book or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Is there anything else you want to share on this one? How great opportunities are rarer than you think? No, I think, I think this is an important lesson for all of us to really beat into our heads. Like the, the important thing is not only to realize how rare opportunities are, but to actually seize them when you feel that you have this opportunity. Again, an opportunity is not a guarantee. It doesn't mean that it's going to be successful. You know, those few opportunities may fail, but like you have to seize those big opportunities when you see them. And one opportunity that you have is to leave a six-star only review for us anywhere that you're listening to the Seeking Wisdom podcast. Leave a six star review. Uh, leave some some comments for us because we get our feedback. I read every single comment on there. Whether you leave it on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spot. Uh, I don't know if you can leave uh, comments on Spotify, but wherever you can leave a comment, leave it. Believe me, I read those and uh, subscribe. 
to the you know one thing newsletter which i'm putting out every week now and you can do that on linkedin or on our website and uh put a little shout out there for the for the schoenfeld right there awesome boom